You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.11, with a little help from my friends. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm going to go vote after we finish recording. And if you're eligible to vote in the United States and you're listening to this around its release date, you should too. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and after I go vote today, I am finally dropping all of the year two commemorative pins in the mail. If you're expecting a pin from us, please give it two weeks from today, Saturday, October 31st, to arrive if you're in the United States, and one month to arrive if you're in another country. If you haven't received your pin by then, please get in touch with us. We want to make sure everyone who is due a pin gets one. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 420 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Sunny M and Zach S. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 13, Little Sister, or Imoto. And for research, we have a throwback to Season 1 when we bombarded you with short research pieces. This week, we are talking about calcium deficiency, napkin etiquette, and where Glemmy Toto belongs in a toilet (laughs) with his name on it. But first, let's tune our radios to Radio Free Shangri-La. This week on The New Adventures of Detective James Stryker, The Conspiracy, Like Her Legs, Goes All the Way Up. It was the morning after the masquerade when the phone rang. I was nursing a hangover and icing a black eye. That butler might look like 50 pounds of straw stuffed in a tuxedo, but he hit like a silverback with a grudge. I found out later he used to be a prize fighter before the war. I never should have gotten testy with him, but at least I found what I was looking for. I was able to track the stolen mobile suits back to an employee at Bajak's Discount Wholesale Junk Emporium and a pilot aboard the Ayug warship Argama. But by then it was too late. The junk dealer and his employee were both missing, presumed dead, after their Ayug co-conspirators double-crossed them and fled the colony. I'd solved the puzzle. I knew who had stolen that mobile suit and wrecked my client's mansion, but I didn't yet understand why. Bajak might have done the job just for the money, but Ayug? That's not their style. There was more going on behind the scenes. Sweet Lady Mystery and I were dancing now. I was still a step behind but I was starting to hear the music. I was thinking over my next move, but then... Hello? Hello, Mr. Stryker. The client. Oh, uh, hello, ma'am. 
I was just going to call you. I've figured out who's responsible for damaging your roof, but- Never mind that, Mr. Stryker. I'm canceling your contract. I don't understand. We're getting close to something big here. I've got proof that AUG is involved. Just a few more days and I can- You need to back off, Mr. Stryker. For your own good. I'll pay you the rest of what I promised, but job's over. Finito. Waimashita. Wait, just tell me- <sighs> I didn't blame her. Whatever's going on behind the scenes with these rebels calling themselves Ayug, it's bigger than just a few stolen mobile suits and a couple murdered junk dealers. It might go all the way to the top. Anaheim Electronics? Who else could manufacture all those ships and mobile suits? And who's giving them political cover? The mayor of Granada? Maybe even the Earth Federation brass themselves. She must have caught a glimpse behind the curtain and got spooked. Someone like her, with everything to lose? She was never going to stick around when things started to get hot. But me? <laughs> I've got nothing waiting for me at home except an apartment I can't afford, full of condiments and no real food, a dining set that doesn't reflect who I am as a person, and a third-rate Haro that calls me Kai. I was ready to burn it down. That apartment, my life, the whole Federation, just so that I could tear off the mask and reveal the sordid truth to the whole world. But to do that, I had to follow the Argama off Shangri-La. And that was going to take more money than I had coming in. I needed to take another job. And if I was lucky, I'd find one that got me off Colony in the process. I didn't exactly have clients beating a path to my door, so I did the one thing I could think of. I bought an ad on a small independent radio station during one of their uh, popular serialized stories. Stumped. Frustrated, absolutely gobsmacked by these tangled webs we humans weave? Call James Stryker today to unravel the mysteries that plague you. James Stryker, a man so clever, he does the crossword in pen. The next morning, I found a line of clients waiting for me outside my door. All right, one at a time, step into my office and uh, tell me about your case. Thanks so much for taking my case, Mr. Stryker. I really need your help. Slow down, kid. I haven't taken any cases yet. What's your problem? It's my little sister, Mr. Stryker. She's smart and hardworking and a great cook, but she's missing and it's all my fault. I need your help to find her. Okay. Do you have any money? Next. I'm convinced that spies, maybe even saboteurs, have infiltrated our ship, and I want to identify them. My captain won't take the problem seriously, so I came to you. And can you pay me for this job? Uh, no, but it's the right thing to do. All of our lives might depend on you. No thanks. Next. Yeah, I'm trying to find the missing head from my mobile suit. I can't afford to pay you. 
But have you considered the value of the exposure? Next. I need help identifying a mobile suit that attacked me. It had the head of a goof, but the body of a Gelgoog. I have been calling it a Gelgoof. I asked online, but everyone just told me it was quote Nozaku, which obviously I already know. Money? No. Do any of you have any money? Oh, I do. I have lots of money. One look at the kid confirmed it. He had class. Decorum. The kind of aura you get from really old money. I hated him immediately. It's very important that all of this be kept very discreet, Striker. It wouldn't do for any of what I'm about to tell you to leave this office. Your secrets are safe with me, Mr... Call me Mr. G. Okay. No, wait. That doesn't sound very cool, does it? Um, call me the G-Man. Whatever you say. Now, what's your problem? Well, there's this girl. I met her one time and she was very mean to me. So now you want revenge? Look, kid, I don't care if you're as rich as the computes worths. I don't do stalker jobs. You really want someone to dox this girl, you do it yourself. Or better yet, forget about it and just leave her in peace. No, 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 no. You don't understand. She was very mean to me, so now I'm in love with her. I don't want you to dox her. I want your help finding her so I can capture her and keep her captive aboard my spaceship. What? And I need to capture her soon so that I can release the ten-year-old girl that I've been holding on my spaceship. I am calling the police. And now the recap for Little Sister. The La Vie en Rose is understaffed, and Astonaji questions whether they can finish overhauling the Argama and its mobile suits. But Emery is certain they can get it done. With repairs ongoing, the Argama's crew waits, helping where they can. Bright sits down to lunch with the kids from Shangri-La, all except Judo, and asks them to keep an eye on their friend. He's liable to do something rash and try to rescue Lena on his own. Rue has the same concern and has been following Judo around the ship, constantly questioning where he's going and what he's doing until he ducks into a nearby bathroom and she decides to wait outside. Moments later, Elle comes up and asks where Judo is. When Rue tells her, she heads into the bathroom herself only for Rue to grab her by the arm. Do I need your permission? Elle grumbles and Rue lets her go. Inside the bathroom, Elle finds that Judo has hidden a normal suit and a large pipe in one of the bathroom stalls, and is preparing to take the double Zeta and rescue Lena. Trying to talk him down, Elle explains that everyone is watching him, he'll never be able to pull it off. But Judo blames himself for Lena's capture. I'm a terrible brother and I hate myself, he tells Elle, as he collapses onto the floor. Moved, Elle decides to help him and says that if he calms down, they can talk to Ino and come up with a plan. 
Bright is the next one to find Rue waiting outside the bathroom and ask her about Judo's whereabouts. Despite her assurance that Judo should be out soon, Bright goes in. Luckily for Elle and Judo, they heard him coming and are ready. Implements in hand, they appear to be in the middle of cleaning the bathroom. Once Bright goes into a stall, Judo leaves, trailing Rue, and allowing Elle to leave with the normal suit. In the hangar, Bichan Mondo claim to be practicing the double zetas combination and transformation maneuvers, when they are really planning how to take the double zeta with them when they leave. Judo and Rue arrive, and Judo, seeing the double zeta already formed, tries to take it and leave, but Rue and Astonaji are able to stop him and wind up locking him in the break room to prevent a second attempt at a rescue mission. Aboard the Endra, Kiara lays out her plan for a sneak attack against the Argama. She will pilot the Arjarja, while Goten will pilot one of the Gaza Seas and use it to tow a dummy asteroid. Once again, witnessing Kiara's roller coaster of emotion at the prospect of piloting a mobile suit, Goten questions why she doesn't send someone else, like Glemmy Toto, in her place. But it turns out that Glemmy is one of Lady Haman's favorites, too important to be put into much danger. At that very moment, Glemmy is sitting down to an opulent meal in a large, ornate dining room. Across the table sits Lena in a pink, formal gown. Every few moments, Glemmy corrects something about Lena's deportment, the way she cuts her meat, the amount of noise she makes, until, fed up, Lena announces that she needs the bathroom. Horrified that she would even mention such a thing in the middle of dinner, Glemmy tells her no, until Lena squats down and declares her willingness to pee on the floor if she's not permitted to leave the room. Glemmy allows her to leave, but not before peeping at her underwear, exposed when she hiked her dress up, and correcting the way she sets her napkin on the table. He also follows her, standing guard outside the bathroom, and is ready when she tries to make a run for it. Telling Lena to behave, he admits that he is waiting for Rue to come rescue her. It seems everyone is making plans. On the Argama, it's El and Eno trying to help Judo escape from the break room. They worry about what happens next, but El decides that when Judo goes to rescue Lena, he won't go alone. She will go along in the Mark II. With Shinta and Kum's help, El burns some food so that smoke fills the hall. Fire! She yells, running up to the guard outside the break room, demanding that they hand over the key so that they can get Judo out of there. While the guard raises the alarm and goes to investigate the source of the fire, El and Judo make a run for it. Bright, Rue, Astonaji, and other members of the crew try to stop them, but it's no use. Manual in hand, El manages to get the Mark II moving, and Eno radios them from a control room, explaining how to open the hatch. Out in space, Judo tries to convince El not to come, but she insists that she'll learn by doing. Besides, they're stronger together. Unbeknownst to either of them, Bicha and Mondo are in the cockpit of one of the core fighters that make up the double Zeta. On their way to the Endra, Judo and El run into Kiara and Goten. Distracted from her original plan by the opportunity to fight the double Zeta, Kiara orders Goten to deploy the weapon hidden in the dummy asteroid. A massive net like the web of a spider, and at every point where the cables intersect, a bomb. But they stay near it once it's deployed, and a well-placed shot from L's beam rifle hits a bomb and catches the Axis pilots in the blast. Judo ignores them, intent on his mission, but makes the mistake of mentioning that he's going to rescue his sister. 
Goten realizes they can use Lina as a hostage to force Judo to surrender. The Endra projects an image of Lina overhead, while Glemmy brings her out onto a launch deck of the ship. Surrender or we'll kill her, Goten declares, and Judo freezes. This is the moment when Bicha and Mondo decide to run. To the surprise of everyone else, they separate the core fighters, leaving Judo vulnerable, without any means of forming the double Zeta. It's L to the rescue, when she manages to shoot Goten's Gaza Sea and knock it back into the net of bombs, forcing him to eject just before his mobile suit is destroyed. Glemmy rushes Lena back inside, and Judo is left calling out to her, swearing that he will save her. This episode gives us a lot to talk about. There are, I think, two really big things that are going to take up most of our discussion time, and then, of course, we have a whole handful of little tidbits that we noticed. And those two big things are, one, how this episode uh, reiterates that the core theme of Double Zeta is about class conflict, and on the other hand, the introduction of a new and very unsettling element in uh, Glemmy and the show's leering at Lena, a 10-year-old girl's underwear. And of course, those two intersect in Glemmy Toto. So we are going to be talking a lot about that creepy little scumbag today. There's something very eloquent about the fact that the show manages to bring up a whole bunch of class issues with two subjects and only two subjects. Firstly, how do people eat? And secondly, uh, people's attitudes towards the bathroom. <laughs> and that's it. Those are the, the two subjects that come up both on the Argama and on the Endra, and that show us a lot about different characters' attitudes, social position, experiences. Yeah, after we watched this episode, I turned to Nina and I was like, they are just obsessed with bathrooms in this episode, and also with eating. Like, lots of meals, lots of food, and lots of bathroom discussions, bathroom necessities. Uh, scenes that wouldn't necessarily need to be staged in a bathroom are because it's important. And this is actually something that is characteristic of Tomino. A lot of his works focus on um, unglamorous, undramatic, often a little bit gross bits of uh, normal human life. The things that other directors don't like to show you. There's something very domestic about it. It's like, yeah, this is people living together. Their bathroom arrangements are significant. <laughs> but why don't we start with eating and then we'll move on. The scene on the Argama makes the point of showing us, in turn, how a whole bunch of different characters eat. First we have Bright, then we have Bicha, then we have Mondo, El, and Eno. And little differences between them can tell you a lot. You know, Bright brings up naval decorum, and he's sitting upright, back straight, good posture, with his meal in front of them, knife and fork in hand, uh, and then we have... <laughs> First, Bicha, whose hot dog is almost more ketchup than hot dog, uh, which is, at least from an American perspective, has sort of childish connotations. Because that's a thing, you know, kids will <laughs> lick the ketchup off their french fries and put more <laughs> ketchup. And the fact that he eats it so messily. Mondo is, like, face into his tray, scarfing his food. You can't even see his face. 
Elle is less of a mess, but she's like standing up to cut her meat or something. I don't know. She's it's... overflowing <laughs> with enthusiasm for the meal. And she's not sitting down properly. It, you know, she's less of a mess than the first two. And then finally, we have Enel, who has good posture, is sitting down properly, but has his napkin tucked into the front of his shirt, which seems like a small thing. But since we're talking about class, we have to bring it up. Like, strictly speaking, that's not proper, right? Using your napkin as a bib is, <laughs> is not what you're supposed Your napkin is supposed to sit in your lap. He is sort of somewhere in between on, on our scale, if we're talking about class and dining habits. He's clearly like more polite, if we want to call it that, and uh, proper than the others. But we know right away, like, but his family wasn't rich. <laughs> well, none of them were. No. Yeah, what's, what's so interesting about the contrast between all of these different kids is how they all basically came from the same place. They all came out of the same milieu, and yet it has produced such different kids. I also think what Bright does here is very interesting because it's not just uh, perfectly proper manners and naval decorum. You know, he has that one, I think it's like a, a fingerling potato go flying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he goes after it. And then he realizes that he has breached decorum and like he gets a little scolding from uh, Anna Hannah, who is the ponytailed engineer and now apparently the waitress because they've run out of other women on the crew. And it's got to be a woman, apparently. But, uh, this tells us uh, a lot about Bright. You know, dining manners are symbolic of who a person is, both as part of the story, as part of the way it's conveyed to the audience, but also like diegetically within the world of the story, the person's manners convey a lot about them. And what we're seeing here with Bright as the audience is that this is a guy who like has a very clear, hidebound, rule-oriented idea of the right way to do things. And yet he is constantly being put in situations where that doesn't actually work for him. And he's still trying to mostly follow the rules, but he's fudging it a little bit on the edges, but he feels bad about the fudging. And this is just bright all over, isn't it? Definitely. But if I can revisit the kids very briefly, it would be easy to read too much into all of their behavior, and so I will try to avoid that. Nina, people come to our podcast to hear us read <laughs> hear us too read much too into much everything. And everything. You know, I mentioned there's something childish about Bicha's like excessive ketchup. Is Mondo a slob just because he's a teenage boy and a slob, or does he eat like that because he's frequently been in situations where there's not enough food? <laughs> Yeah, Mondo is the smallest out of all of the kids, and he's not significantly younger than them, which could suggest he's just a small person, or it could be because of malnutrition. Right. You know, he could be eating as quickly as he can, as much as he can, because there's food here now, and who knows what the food situation will be tomorrow. And we have had some inkling from Eno's comments about his father that Eno has the best family relationship of anyone <laughs> of these kids mm -hmm. you know he had it sounds like probably the most involved parents and so he has the most sort of defined table manners because he had the most involved parents you know these other kids are basically uh living wild while their parents do god knows what and this is consistent with the way we saw them eating back in the episode where they were given the the boxed lunches in exchange for labor on the argama I had forgotten about that, but yeah. And then we have the contrasting dining scene on the Axis side. And I just need, <laughs> I need to rant for a moment. Apparently, the Endra has a formal dining room. 
Are you sure that's the Endra's formal dining room and not just the formal dining room in Glemmy's quarters? <laughs> Maybe there are multiple formal dining rooms. Uh, they have enough staff, enough people aboard that they can have not one, not two, but three wait staff for a meal of two people. Wait staff in white jackets, tuxedo shirts. And why does Glemmy just happen to have a pink dress available for Lena? A good question. Mind you, there are a couple of little moments in the episode as a whole um, that are, you know, I don't like to overfixate on continuity errors, but clearly they're not too caught up in, <laughs> in making sure everything makes logical sense and fits perfectly. But it's a little creepy that there just happens to be a dress that fits Lena aboard the Endra. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's made out of some curtains or whatever, but it really does seem like Lemmy just had that on hand. And that's actually something we're going to be talking a lot about, which is the question of intentionality from the creators. How much credit can we give them that some things are there to make Glemmy seem creepy? And how much of it is just things that they thought were okay that we think are creepy? And that's something we can't really answer, but we're going to keep talking about it. Uh, but let's hang on class for another minute. The contrast just between the uh, dining experiences goes beyond the decor. There's also the food. Mm -hmm. The meal on the Argama was like a sausage in a bun. It was a hot dog. Um, it seemed like a nice one, and the kids were certainly very enthusiastic about it. The whole ambiance of that scene suggests this is like a nice meal for these kids. Like Bright has gone all out to arrange a nice meal. But it's still a cafeteria meal, right? It's, yeah. It's the sort of thing that you might get. Um, at the you know cafeteria in an office or at a school. Mm -hmm. Lena's meal uh, on the Endra. First of all, the first thing we see is like a four-tiered cake being wheeled in with a little model of I think the Guadan on top of it. <laughs> what? <laughs> it doesn't look like a good cake, by the way. I don't know what was popular for cakes in the '80s, but this looks like a pretty gross cake. Um, anyway, they wheel in the cake, but Lena's meal consists of. Uh, Definitely steak, lobster, uh, assorted fruits, including the largest pear and the smallest bananas that I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, and then some like sort of pinkish circles that might have been ham or yams. I also thought I saw a salad. Mm -hmm. And then she's drinking. It looks like probably water and juice while Glemmy has wine. Where did they get lobster in space? Also, just the contrasting sentiments of the scene, right? Like... Bright is asking all the Shangri-La kids for a favor, but also wants them to have some decorum. Like, But for him, when he says, have some decorum, he sort of means like, have some self-respect and also don't make me look bad <laughs> as your captain. <laughs> it is unclear why exactly Glemmy cares whether Lena has good table manners or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It feels like he's Pygmalioning her, mm -hmm. which for those of you not familiar, there's a, a play called Pygmalion um, and it's the, that play on which the musical My Fair Lady is based. So it's about a wealthy and socially well-placed man uh, taking a, you know, poor and quote-unquote low-class young woman and polishing her up, basically, so that she seems high-class, too. And this goes back to the Pygmalion myth, which comes to us from Greek mythology and is about someone, a sculptor, literally creating a woman out of clay, making the perfect woman because he made her himself, 
which of course also connects to Japanese literature and the tale of Genji, which we've talked about before, but includes an extensive storyline where Genji uh, kidnaps a young woman who physically resembles a woman that he's interested in uh, so that he can raise her to be his perfect woman. And when he kidnaps her, she is maybe eight. She's around Lena's age. Uh, before we move into the natural transition of the bathroom stuff, uh, I also want to bring up the fact that Kiara tells us that Glemmy is one of Haman's favorites. This is the first episode where we get a sense for Glemmy as more than just a starstruck teenage pilot. Glemmy is an elite. Glemmy is uh, a member of this upper class in Xi'an. Yeah, when she mentions that he is one of Haman's favorites, I'm not entirely sure whether we're meant to take from that that his family is important or uh, perhaps that Haman likes to surround herself with beautiful young men. Take from that what you will. Uh, it's, it's unclear. The phrase in English certainly has connotations of, at the very least, eye candy, if not <laughs> something more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, but in Japanese, I'm not so sure. In any regard, he's, you know, a member of her inner circle, it would seem. And Kiara tells Gotten explicitly, Glemmy is more important than you. <laughs> I really don't think that was intended when Glemmy was first introduced. Because when he's first introduced in the sort of mass of Xeon pilots who go out on that one mission, there's nothing special about him and he's not treated specially by Mashima. But anyway, we have these scenes with Glemmy that sort of emphasize that his family is likely very wealthy, that these are the kinds of experiences that he has. Uh, and then Lena stands up and declares that she has to go to the bathroom. And he is appalled that she would even mention such a subject at the dinner table. <laughs> Presumably, she's supposed to use polite euphemisms. Uh, has I need to, to go powder, powder my nose. <laughs> I need to go repair my mobile suit. And then when he tells her that she can't go, Lena just like pops a <laughs> squat like she's going to pee on the floor. <laughs> Which it's worth bringing up. Uh, I'm sure many of you already know this, but squat toilets rather than Western style toilets are quite popular throughout Asia. They were very common in Japan. I don't know at what point people started having the more Western style toilet instead of the squat toilet. You may have to do some research about that. <laughs> I may indeed, especially since, hey, Toto, Glemmy's last name, is also the name of, like, I looked this up actually, the world's biggest toilet manufacturing company. <laughs> Which is a Japanese company, right? It is. Hmm. Um, and there being a lot of toilets in this episode <laughs> seems pertinent. Yeah. It's kind of a weird coincidence, if it is a coincidence. But anyway, the way that Lena just like very comfortably, easily, quickly squats down sort of tells me, okay, you probably have a squat toilet home. That's what you're used to. And it's entirely possible that, again, that was a class thing, that older homes that less fancy homes had squat toilets as opposed to sort of newer Western style ones. And we do see that on the Argama, the toilets are all, you know, Western uh, sit down stall style toilets. Fascinating thing about the Argama's bathroom though, it appears to be gender neutral. The, <laughs> the class bit here, well, I wonder if it's a class bit, but um, so we have Rue and we're gonna have to talk more about Rue in this episode. Rue being very uncool. Rue being... Rue's a total narc. Well, Rue seems to care an awful lot, whereas normally she doesn't seem to care about much of anything. <laughs> and she's siding with the adults. 
But despite the fact that it's a bathroom with stalls and gender neutral, and despite the fact that Rue has been literally following Judo around the ship and sometimes physically grabbing hold of him to make sure he doesn't run off by himself, she will not follow him into the bathroom. Yeah. And yet, Elle has no such scruple. Bright has no such scruple. <laughs> like, Rue will not go into that bathroom with other people, apparently. And that's something that doesn't seem to bother any of the rest of them. Which is curious because we know Bright is like, canonically, Bright is from the elite. Bright is high class. But he's also a soldier and he's been doing this a long time. Right. He's been in the military and living on ships for like most of his adult life. He's used to the communal arrangements. That makes sense. One of the things that struck me about the importance of the bathroom in this episode is how uh, the the younger characters, the lower class characters take advantage of, you know, bathroom etiquette and the special privileges that are allowed to somebody who is going to the bathroom in order to get the better of the older and higher class people that they are trying to escape. You know, Lena probably does actually need to use the bathroom there, but she also tries to use the bathroom in order to get a little bit of space from Glemmy and in order to escape from him. And Judo is doing the same thing on the Argama because within this high-class uh, etiquette of life, gross, icky body stuff like going to the bathroom is something that you are supposed to hide and keep private. And it, like no one is supposed to acknowledge that you're doing it. And so it gives you this little bubble where you can escape from surveillance. Yeah, this is something that has come up a lot in sort of COVID times. But there is a, a degree to which privacy is a luxury for wealthy people. <laughs> like you have to have space to have privacy. And so Certain members of the crew are accustomed to not having as much privacy and certain members of the crew are accustomed to having more. Uh, and it shows. But not only are they accustomed to not having so much privacy, they still understand the rules that bind other people. Judo knows that when he goes to the bathroom, he gets a certain amount of privacy. I do think part of the contrast with Rue is also simply that she is not as close with Judo. She doesn't know him as well. You know, he and Elle are old friends. They have known each other a long time. They are very close. He trusts her. Uh, and Rue does not have that relationship with any of these people. I kept trying to pinpoint what emotion it is that Rue is having in this episode, and I found it very difficult. Is she honestly worried about Judo following orders and making trouble for the ship? Is she worried about his safety? Is she frustrated? There's definitely a moment when she's jealous of L taking out the Mark II. That was the only time I was really clear about what Rue was feeling oh, and why. Yeah. Well, because she mutters to herself, I can't believe L got the Mark II to work. She has that look again when um, Emery is saying, we've got two new types. This is amazing. And Rue is like, I was supposed to be the ace. <laughs> I've got stars on my uniform. No, I'm the special girl, and there can only be one. There can only be one girl. Glemmy agrees. This is a weird point on which Rue and Glemmy agree. <laughs> uh, they were made for each other. That scene where Lena threatens to just pee on the floor if Glemmy won't let her go to the bathroom does another important thing, too. Besides revealing, as Nina pointed out, a lot about Lena's class background, it also 
emphasizes Lena's youth. Because just peeing on the floor because you can't get to the bathroom <laughs> is a thing kids do, right? Yeah. So in this scene where uh, Glemmy and the camera, unfortunately, are both leering at Lena, we're also really emphasizing her youth, her uh, discomfort in this situation, her unfamiliarity with what's going on. Why does Glemmy look under the table? There is no reason for him to do that except to look at Lena's underwear. That's it. That's what makes this so egregious. There have been like little flashes of uh, a little bit of underwear in prior Gundam shows. The short skirts that Fra and Fa wore made that sort of inevitable. But it was always like... It was very momentary. Uh, it was not like no one was looking at them except for the camera. Um, and it was always in like a corner of the screen here, center screen, camera lingers. And there is an in-frame observer in the form of Glemmy, which really just emphasizes the act of looking. It's the main action of the shot. It's mm -hmm. the purpose of the whole shot. Both times it happens when he looks under the table and when she does the curtsy and her skirt flips up. Yeah, the... The curtsy got me too because, and it feels so like creepy to, it is, to, it talk, is cre to talk through. Oh, okay. But is she consciously showing Glemmy her underwear in that mm. curtsy? Because afterwards she does the like cute little smile, head tilt thing because she's seen Rue manipulate this guy into getting out of bad situations. I mean, you're very right about that. I hadn't considered that that might have been an intentional. Her dress is way, like, I'm sorry, but that dress is so long. You don't flash underwear in that dress unless you, like, mean to. Oof, that's way darker than I had imagined. Yeah, I mean, you might be right. I mean, she, she would be emulating a thing that she has mm -hmm. seen work, not once, but twice. And look how struck by this Glemmy is, right? He, like, blushes. He's sort of, he sort of, like, rears back. Like, he's he's straightened up by the experience. Yeah, he's like, He's Whoa. actually clapping for the, for the curtsy. For the curtsy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for the quote-unquote curtsy. Mm. I hinted earlier, but I think there's a lot of room to debate whether uh, the show is asking us to leer at Lena or to sneer at Glemmy or, you know, both. I mean, it's ultimately it's both because uh, while we are probably, I think, meant to sneer at Glemmy in this scene, like the show is also doing this to Lena. Yeah. Uh, I was reading an interview recently with uh, the anime director, Oshii Mamoru, who is uh, responsible for Ghost in the Shell and some of the Pat Labor movies. One of the things he talks about is, you know, the unwritten, unspoken rules of anime and what you can put in anime and what you can't. And he complains about not being able to put in things like passionate adult love affairs. But it does allow, quote, cute things like shower scenes or skirt flipping. Um, skirt flipping, basically what's going on here. And he talks about how a lot of creators will sort of exploit these rules around anime to try to say things, to send messages that they wouldn't be allowed to get away with in, uh, in a traditional live action movie. And part of the reason for that is that the people who are looking at it, the sponsors, the networks, they don't look at anime as a serious thing. And so when there are serious messages in it, they miss them. So... You can say almost anything you want as long as you're a little bit clever about it and you use the specific language of anime. But on the other hand, because the audience isn't looking for those messages, they're not going to hear what you're saying either. So this may be a case of trying to use the language of anime in order to make comments about 
rich, creepy snobs like Glemmy. Or the sexualization of young girls or... Exactly. But if you're, if you're trying to send the message by doing the thing, like... <laughs> exactly. You end up being and perpetuating the problem that you're criticizing. Well, and just the the base position that skirt flipping is quote unquote cute. Like I question some of the yeah. some of the core positions yeah. of this. This is something we're going to have to research more seriously at a later date. I should mention that Oshi interview that I was talking about uh, was Ano Hideaki of Evangelion fame discussing Shar's counterattack with Oshi. It was translated by Tayuta for the blog tominostuff.tumblr.com, and you should go check it out. Lest we forget that the character of Kiara is supposed to be explicitly sexual all the time, <laughs> uh, some of the faces she makes when she is touching her mobile suit and getting ready to get into her mobile suit. The way she um, handles Strokes. the <laughs> control stick. Yep. Yeah. Well, and it, it like zooms in. That is the action of mm -hmm. the frame is mm -hmm. her like stroking the controls. Yep. It's very explicit. Yes, it is. Also, it is the scene that directly follows Glemmy grooming Lena in the dining room. Uh, the contrast between the innocent 10 year old girl being sexualized and this like stereotypically oversexed adult woman uh, could not be more clear. I'm enjoying Double Zeta a lot, but there are things about it that I think are bad storytelling. <laughs> uh, and that's fine. You know, I can I can like things that I think are not terribly well written. That's nothing fine. is perfect. No, nothing is perfect. Except this episode of the podcast. But, you know, starting from Bright going to all of Judo's friends to say, I'm afraid he's going to do something foolish and I want you to keep an eye on him. Like, you know, maybe the thing that would stop him from doing something foolish would be for anyone to tell him what the plan to get Lena back is. Do they have a plan? You know, Bright, if you don't want Judo running off on his own, you could develop a Lena rescue plan and share it with him. Right, because that's basically what L does, right? Yeah. L says, we will help you, but we're going to come up with a plan and we're going to do this calmly. Together. She realizes she can't get him not to go, and she doesn't really want to. But yeah. that they're like safest and strongest working together. And I mean, she she manages what Rue cannot, right? You mean getting the Mark II running? <laughs> I meant calming Judo down and working with him. And if Bright can't be bothered to develop a Lena rescuing plan, if he doesn't think that rescuing Lena is a priority, then maybe he needs to rethink the part of his plan where it says, rely on 14-year-old boy to pilot the war machine. You want Judo. You have to rescue Lena. I mean, Lena is the only reason they have judo. The show leaves a lot of sort of hanging threads like this, where like logically someone should be doing something, but nobody is. When Elle is coming up with her plan, she says, oh, we'll get Eno's help. She doesn't even think of Beach and Mondo. She doesn't mention them. Okay, they are not okay, part of the plan. Hang on. That's because Elle is smart and has good intuition. Right. But also, like at this point, doesn't everybody know that they're the collaborators and why isn't anybody doing anything about that they had the whole thing of like oh we think Eno knows who they are but he won't say who could Eno possibly be protecting I wonder <laughs> Torres or Astanaji and like the chicken their position as if not collaborators then certainly not really members of the Argama crew is a constant source of danger to the whole ship it's not as if they're not doing anything 
They put Judo in so much danger in this episode yeah. when, without telling him, they unform the double Zeta. Now that they're trapped on the Endra, presumably that storyline is going to come to a head. The nerve of them calling to Judo for help when they get stuck on the Endra, <laughs> when presumably the Endra was where they wanted to be to begin with. I have some unkind and unpodcastable words <laughs> to say to them. Uh, yeah. In a somewhat sillier turn of events, while I'm fairly confident the show did not kill off Astonaji this episode, the show kind of killed off Astonaji this episode. <laughs> Astonaji can breathe in space, Nina. Yeah, um, I don't know if the rest of you caught that, but Shinta and Kum tie Astonaji and one other crew member up. Uh, and I don't think anybody brings them to safety when Judo opens the hangar. So, yeah. <laughs> Bye. I, I think they're okay. I hope they're okay. I don't want to have to write an in memoriam for Astonaji. <laughs> Poor Astonaji. The indignities of his life <laughs> are manifold. <laughs> we see that Kiara is in many ways repeating Mashima's sins. Yet again, she had a perfectly good plan for taking out the Argama, which is their actual target. And she scrapped the whole thing because <gasps> the double Zeta, my <laughs> rival. <laughs> you know, he didn't even want to fight them. It would have been the perfect time to go take out the Argama, yeah, but no. Yeah. They just cross paths. <laughs> Kiara destroys the Argama. Judo rescues Lena. Everybody gets what they want. And the foolishness of Judo telling them... I am rescuing my sister who you have captive, <laughs> which could just be stupidity or it could just be that he's not used to thinking of himself as important. Yeah. He does not currently recognize the value of his position or of what he does. Uh, and so doesn't realize like, oh, they would want to hold my sister captive as a lever against me. He's just very straightforward. He is a good, dumb space boy. Maybe less good than Camille was. Definitely more dumb. But luckily, Glemmy would never do something so underhanded as to use a hostage. Unless, unless he has an opportunity to capture the girl he's into. Like, that's the other thing about Glemmy in this. Why does he want Rue? I mean, we, we know why he wants Rue. That's a rhetorical question. But that's some, like, mustache-twirling, sinister, evil villain. I will capture the... I will, I will capture, capture the princess and make her my bride yeah. kind of behavior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode, um, because of all of the everything in it, made me uh, look up a bunch of the characters' canonical ages. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, the most interesting bit here, by the way, is that Glemmy and Mashima are almost the same age. Glemmy is like 17 or 18. And Mashima is like 19 or 20. Wow. Yeah. Kiara is 23. Kiara's a bit older, which makes sense and fits her character. Mm -hmm. Lena, of course, again, 10. 10-year-old 10 child. <sighs> Judo, El, Mondo, and Ino, all of them 14. Okay. Icha is 15. Okay. Which kind of makes sense. He sort of feels like he was, uh, if not the like actual natural leader, he certainly thought he was the leader of their group before. Yeah. And a lot of his resentment now sort of comes out of being surpassed by Judo in every conceivable way. Yeah, I <laughs> I couldn't believe the two of them being like, we're not going to be Judo's assistants. And it's like, why? It's not like you want to be in charge. <laughs> they want all the benefits of being in charge and none of the responsibilities. They just don't like anybody telling them what to do. <laughs> uh, and then Rue is 18. So she's in that Mashima Glemmy age group. That makes her... 
like fixation on judo a little weird. If you were 18 and a 14-year-old came along and was better than you at all the things you were good at, you might be a little fixated. Right, but we we have discussed previously that there may be undertones of like rivals to lovers happening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that creeps me out. Agreed, although I think it's mostly been judo towards Rue rather than the other way around. Um, and that's just standard Gundam stuff. Yeah. Like teenage boy fixates on older woman. Like <laughs> Fair. There's a joke that every Tomino project just like exudes why no mommy girlfriend energy. <laughs> it's true. Every Gundam protagonist so far would like a mommy girlfriend. Although I don't necessarily get those vibes from Judo currently. No. He's too independent. He doesn't really want somebody to take care of him. I strongly suspect that definitely Amuro and probably Camille were very much reflections of Tomino as a person. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think Judo is consciously meant to be very different from them. Mm -hmm. And so there's probably much less affiliation between Tomino and Judo. The final thing that I wanted to bring up for the episode is also about Judo. The way that he is drawn in that final shot of the episode, the close-up on his face when he's vowing to get Lena back, is so completely different from all of the other animation in the entire episode. What really struck me is the bit when he's in the bathroom and he's like declaring his intentions to rescue Lena and his the helmet for his normal suit is on crooked mm, and his yeah. like eyes are twitching and he's got the sharp pipe in his hand. He is usually pretty, you know, hopeful and relaxed about things, but the fact that Lena has been captured strikes him as so unjust, so unfair. What kind of a world would let this happen to Lena, who is so good and so smart and looks after him? And every decision he has made since the show started has been made with an eye towards what is best for Lena. Like you said, he wouldn't be on the Argama if not for her. And if she's gone, then not only has he lost a friend, a sister, and a good cook, but he's lost his guiding light. What does Judo do without Lena? And now the research on calcium deficiency, toilets, and napkin etiquette. During this episode, after a confrontation outside the bathroom on the Argama, Rue snarls that L must be irritable because of a calcium deficiency. Now, I'm no doctor. But then neither is Rue. A calcium deficiency, or hypocalcemia, can cause a variety of symptoms, including the intuitive ones like brittle bones, teeth and nails, fragile skin, as well as muscle cramps, muscle spasms, and weakness, numbness, or tingling in the hands, feet, and face. There are also possible neurological symptoms, confusion, depression, memory loss, even hallucinations. But I couldn't find any mention of irritability or short temper, the symptoms which formed the basis of Rue's diagnosis. It's also really important to note that you don't develop a calcium deficiency overnight. This isn't a situation where Elle is going to be temperamental today because she didn't drink her milk yesterday. Short-term hypocalcemia usually doesn't show any noticeable symptoms because your body can satisfy its day-to-day -day calcium needs by just taking it directly from your bones which act as a kind of giant calcium reservoir. Now, 
there are actually some good reasons to think that L may be experiencing calcium deficiency. Teenagers need a lot of calcium in their diets. Poor kids like L and the others are less likely to eat the kind of balanced, healthy diet that would ensure optimal intake and absorption of dietary calcium. Although we do know there was a consciousness of needing to drink milk or a, a desire to include milk in the diet because we see Lena buying some. Yes, but we also, in that scene, heard Lena talk about how hard it was to get milk, how it had been days since she'd been able to get any milk. So we've seen evidence uh, that these kids in particular have experienced significant food insecurity in their lives. I mean, look at the way they eat. We talked about that earlier in this episode. And as we mentioned just now, we know that it's been hard for them to get necessities like milk sometimes. Furthermore, a person needs vitamin D in order to absorb the calcium that they consume. It's very likely that the kids, growing up in cramped, slum-like conditions in the poor parts of the no longer rotating properly Shangri-La colony, were, like basically every resident of New York City, not getting enough vitamin D. And it's only gotten worse for them now that they're inside a spaceship 24-7. But is L here experiencing hypocalcemia so serious that it would be affecting her neurologically? Is she experiencing memory loss, confusion, or hallucinations? Probably not. Unless we want to say that new type flashes are actually hallucinations brought on by calcium deficiency in space. So with all of that in mind, if not eating enough calcium equals irritability isn't borne out by the science, where did this line come from? I wasn't able to find any references to a link between calcium consumption and irritability in English. But when I searched for information about calcium deficiency in Japanese, I discovered a funny thing. Alongside articles about the symptoms, causes, and treatments for hypocalcemia, I also found a bunch of articles talking about what they described as the widespread misconception that people become ira-ira, meaning frustrated, irritated, annoyed, or on edge, when they don't get enough calcium. One even mentioned people complaining about not being able to get their doctors to prescribe them calcium supplements to treat their frustration. And just imagine how frustrating that would be. As I mentioned in the talkback, while we were discussing how prominently toilets feature in this episode, I remembered that Glemmy's last name, Toto, is also the name of a toilet manufacturer. A coincidence? Maybe, but what fun would that be? This week, I will be talking about the Toto Toilet Company, squat toilets versus Western-style toilets in Japan, and whether or not there's any reason toilets might have been a topic of interest in the mid-1980s. As it happens, Toto, short for Toyo Toki, or Eastern Ceramics, is the world's largest toilet manufacturer. They were founded in 1917 and are based in Kitakyushu, Japan. Their most famous products are not toilets themselves, per se, but what they call washlets, toilet seats with integrated bidets. All of them warm the bidet water and are controlled with a panel of buttons along the side or a remote control. And some models include dryers, seat warmers, air fresheners. If you've heard about or seen or used the stereotypically high-tech Japanese toilet, it was probably a washlet made by Toto. And the first ever washlet was released in 1980. Their first overseas sales were in 1986, 
And by 1987, they had introduced their first toilet with integrated washlet and had sold over 1 million units. In 1982, Toto made waves by releasing a television advertisement for the washlet in the prime time slot, 7 to 10 p.m. The ad featured a young woman explaining that when your hands get dirty, you wash them. She puts some paint on her hand and tries to wipe it off with toilet paper. Paper alone isn't enough. It's the same for your butt. Then there's a video of the bidets spraying water, and the ad ends with a slogan that more or less translates to, butts want to be clean too, while the actress flashes her, for lack of a better term, bloomers at the camera. This ad and the time slot prompted complaints from a lot of the viewing public, who considered such topics inappropriate for dinner time. An opinion Glemmy echoes almost word for word in this episode. This doesn't seem to have hurt the company in the long run, though. As of 2012, 70% of Japanese households had a Toto washlet. It's hard to believe Glemmy Toto's name, his line about the inappropriateness of mentioning certain subjects during dinner, and the parallels to the real-life Toto company and its history are total coincidences. The other toilet-related topic I wanted to look into this week is squat toilets versus quote-unquote Western-style toilets. I know this division isn't strictly speaking accurate, but Western style is what the seated toilets are called in Japan. When did Western style toilets start appearing in Japan? By the mid-1980s, what portion of households had them? It turns out that Western style toilets first appeared in Japan in the early 20th century, but didn't gain much traction until the occupation period. This was both because of American cultural preferences and because prior to the occupation, human waste was widely collected and used as fertilizer, a practice the occupation government banned, uh, although a few areas continued to do it regardless. It was 1977 before the sale of Western toilets surpassed that of traditional squat toilets in Japan. But they took over the market pretty quickly from that point on. In 1985, more than 70% of Toto's toilets shipped were Western-style. Of course, this would be applying to new construction or to remodels. It's safe to assume that the older the structure, the more likely it would be to still have a squat toilet. The earliest data I found was from 1963, when more than 80% of units shipped were squat toilets. And as recently as 2016, squat toilets still outnumbered Western-style ones in public elementary and junior high schools. Until recently, many public toilets were still the squatting type, since they're considered easier to clean and more hygienic for the user. But in the lead-up to the now-postponed Tokyo 2020 Olympics, the government sought to increase the number of Western-style toilets in public restrooms on major subway lines. They wanted to get it up to about 90%. And they also wanted to increase the portion of toilets in public elementary and junior high schools that were Western-style, up to 80%. For public restrooms on subway lines, this is for ease of use by foreign tourists. But in schools, it's because an increasing number of young people have so little experience of squat toilets that they aren't comfortable using them, and because the seated toilet is easier for Japan's burgeoning elderly population to use, and schools are frequently used as community shelter sites during natural disasters. What we know about where Judo and Lina were living, plus the prevalence of squat toilets in schools and public restrooms, certainly explains why Lina naturally and comfortably squats down to pee, when Glemmy tries to prevent her from going to the bathroom. And for the curious, yes, I did find the advertisement, and yes, it will be linked in the show notes. 
I want to revisit the discussion we started in the talkback about Glemmy Toto and his table etiquette scene with Lena. We have been pretty clear about what we think of the young man. Not to put too fine a point on it, but he is a creep, he is a snob, he's probably a pedophile, and he seems uncomfortable around any woman who isn't totally in his power. But those are our reactions. That's what we're hearing. So I'd like to take a closer look at what the show is saying about him. And the medium that I'm going to use for this inquiry is napkins. Glemmy and the show make a big deal of the napkin. Even after giving Lena permission to go to the bathroom, Glemmy still stops her to show her the proper way to leave the napkin when leaving the table during a meal. He folds the used napkin neatly, places it on the edge of the table so it's half on, half off, and then he moves the soup bowl to hold down one edge of the napkin. This is a deliberate, precise action, and it is framed in such a way as to draw our attention. So let us give it the attention it demands. Before I continue, though, a disclaimer is in order. Etiquette customs vary around the world and in different contexts. Various different cultures and communities have their own rules of table etiquette, and a correct practice in one place could be deeply offensive somewhere else. There's a whole genre of books for travelers just listing the ordinary-seeming gestures that might cause embarrassment or worse in the wrong context. The rules may vary in business or social settings. They may be affected by the class of the diners. Militaries have their own sets of rules, and may Emily Post help you if you ever wind up at a dinner with exiled nobles from space? Even within a single context, like, for example, modern American table manners for a formal dinner, different experts may offer subtly different versions of the rules, with the proviso that one should always follow the lead of one's host. All of that is to say that while I researched the customs in what I suspected to be the most likely inspirations for Axis Xeon napkin etiquette, it's entirely possible that I missed something. And some of the contexts I looked at, like the table manners that were taught to officers of the Imperial Japanese Navy prior to World War II, required me to read Japanese sources, and so I can't be sure that I didn't miss something important in the translation. All the same, napkin etiquette at table is remarkably similar across the countries I looked at, which included the United Kingdom, the United States, France, Germany, and, at least for Western-style meals, Japan. There are, however, some variables. Also, it's important to note that in traditional Japanese-style dining, there is no cloth napkin of the kind used by Lena and Glemmy in this scene. To the extent that there are Japan-specific rules for napkin usage, they are for Western-style dining, and they are consciously lifted from Western-style manners. This is a practice that goes back to the Meiji period, when the Japanese upper class studied the manners of their European and American contemporaries in order to better fit into the ruling world order. Officers in the Imperial Japanese Navy were trained in the table manners practiced by other navies in order to prepare them for meetings with officers from other countries. And the fundamental similarity in manners should come as no surprise. Modern table etiquette, like most rules of manners, descends from codes of conduct for interactions between noble Europeans, tracing back at least as far as the Renaissance. During the 1700s, when the French court set the fashions for most of Europe, the court imposed rigorous codes of behavior on the nobles. These were picked up by other European powers, and they spread along with their colonial empires. Manners functioned, and continue to function, as one of the means by which social strata were delineated. They were also ways for those higher up in the hierarchical society to dominate those below. 
As the absolute despots of the early modern period strengthened their holds on their nations, they likewise strengthened their dominance over their nobles' lives. What a tremendous exercise of power it is to tell another person when and how they are allowed to eat. This power dynamic is again reflected in the dining scene between Glemmy and Lena. Besides holding her captive, Glemmy now presumes to control how she eats and when she uses the bathroom, some of the most vital, most personal parts of her life. Now, without further ado, Glemmy is either wrong about the etiquette he's teaching, or else this is meant to be a universal century or perhaps Xeon-specific version of table manners. All the different versions of napkin etiquette that I consulted make a clear distinction between how the napkin is arranged when one is leaving the table during the meal versus when one leaves the table at the conclusion of the meal. I'm going to talk through both, but it's the former that I think is relevant here because, after all, Lena is only going to the bathroom. And Glemmy himself says there's etiquette to observe when leaving the table during a meal. At the start of a meal, the napkin is unfolded and placed on the lap. As Nina mentioned, tucking the napkin into your shirt as a bib is uh, frowned upon, although there was a time in history when it was considered the proper way to do it. Now, there are subtle differences when it comes to the specifics, like how much to unfold the napkin, where to hold the napkin while unfolding it, how to orient it on your lap, but those are subtle and they're not very important to us right now. We're not preparing for any fancy dinners. It's quarantines. The rules for using the napkin are actually quite variable. Again, not relevant, but interesting enough to note in passing that some sources say the napkin should never leave your lap so long as you are at the table, while others advised using the napkin frequently to blot your lips to avoid leaving smudges on your drinking glasses. As for leaving table, there were, across all the different rules I saw, three variables in play. First, does the napkin go on the chair or the table? Second, where on the table should it go? And third, how should the napkin be arranged? There's general agreement that when leaves the table for good, the napkin goes on the table, perhaps to aid those who must clean up after the meal. The second variable, where on the table ought the napkin to go at the end of the meal, offered more options, including left of your plate, right of your plate, exactly where your plate was but only after it has been cleared away, next to the butter dish, next to the upper right corner of the dessert plate, and so on. Not one single source suggested, under any circumstances, either placing the napkin so it hangs half off the table, or placing a dish on top of the napkin, much less both of those together. Now, as for the third variable, the arrangement of the napkin, there is majority agreement that it should be left in a crumpled heap, not folded. Now, these are etiquette guides, so they like to say it should be a neat heap, whatever a neat heap of napkin is. One source, a Japanese guide to Western-style dining etiquette, mentioned that some Japanese diners do like to fold their napkins at the end of the meal in order to conceal any stains and present as neat an image as possible. Uh, however, this guide cautioned against this practice, saying that it might be interpreted as rude, or perhaps even as an insult to the chef. This inconsistency is probably as frustrating to me as a researcher as it is to anyone who's embarrassed themselves trying to do the right thing at a dinner party. And to make matters worse, I turned up one anecdote from an 1863 article about the custom then in force in France, whereby a diner would indicate their intention to return to dine again soon at the same home simply by folding the napkin after dinner. It was essentially a way of saying, 
This one is mine. I'll be using it again soon. This was preferred among close friends, so as to save the trouble of washing that napkin. But it was considered presumptuous, verging on vulgar in most circumstances. There is somewhat more debate about what to do with the napkin when leaving during the meal. Most English and U.S. sources call for leaving the napkin on the seat of the chair. The logic here is that the napkin may have become soiled during use, and so to leave a dirty napkin on the table would be insulting or unsightly for the other diners still present. On the other hand, sources for continental etiquette rules, that is, those prevailing in Germany and France, suggest leaving the napkin on the table when leaving momentarily. The logic here is that a dirty napkin might soil the chair, and in turn it might soil your clothes when you sit back down, which was the exact scenario that the napkin was meant to prevent. Now this is a high-stakes choice. Besides the risk of staining the chair or your clothes, one source I consulted called putting a used napkin on the table while others are still enjoying their meals to be as insulting as throwing down the gauntlet, and could perhaps be read as a challenge to the others in your party to eat faster. I'm done. I want to leave. Why aren't you? Loyal listeners will remember that I researched the significance of throwing down the gauntlet and the phrase's possible origins back in episode 2.28. In any event, no one is saying that you should put a crisp fold in the napkin and place it on the edge of the table one corner underneath a soup bowl. <laughs> that method is not recommended. So that leads to the next question. Why make a big show of Glemmy teaching table manners that don't seem to be in force anywhere in the world today? Maybe this is meant to be an obscure bit of world-building, showing how the various approaches to napkin etiquette might change in the future. I briefly considered whether placing the plate on the napkin would have any advantages in a spaceship context, but it's not like that plate is going to do any good if they suddenly lose gravity. Maybe it's meant to show us that for all of his pomposity, Glemmy doesn't actually know what he's talking about. If so, it could be part of a larger project of making a mockery of the overblown little nobleman. But then again, expecting the audience to recognize what he's doing as a mistake and draw the right conclusion from it, that's a bit of a stretch. Maybe the people drawing the show didn't know or didn't care what the correct etiquette would have been, and so they just put together something that looked plausible. Or maybe Glimmy is just doing it this way because he has hit upon the precise way to arrange his napkin after dinner, which causes the most inconvenience for whichever unlucky servant is obliged to clear the meal after young Master Toto is finished. Next time on episode 3.12, Lost and Found, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 14, and... Bright, pull yourself together! Enhance! Enhance! The Argama Amateur Theater Troupe. A State of Nature. Is this where Moon Moon the Wolf is from? Street Harassment. The Haman Youth Uniform. Smoke Bomb! And Kiara is easily distracted you will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you.
The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, All of these mobile armor designs are just a plot by Big Zam to sell you more Zams out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Taliarchus in the MSB Discord. Thank you, Taliarchus. And thank you for listening. Hello, friend. (laughs) Or were you talking to your microphone? So we are going to be talking a lot about that creepy little... (laughs) About that creepy little scumbag. Yeah. But first... Go ahead. um, You go ahead. I was going to... I didn't actually have anything for that. (laughs) Um. This... (laughs) This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam... This... Farting noises with my mouth. Those are those are the two, like, Nexi. <laughs> Nexuses? Nexi? I don't know. No, what's the, um... Dis- not display. Like display, when you do it in an art, it's... I can't... I'm, I'm totally blanking on the word. Um... um depicts. Depicts, yes. Gotten is the Astanaji of the Endra. <laughs> and you're going to have to delete that. Yep. I love Kiara psyching herself up before they go into <gasps> battle. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, never mind. I was thinking I was thinking about the the state of nature, the quote about the state of nature. How life is like nasty, brutish, and short. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while that doesn't describe Asanaji's life, it does describe the teenagers he has to deal with. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Uh. Yeah, that was pretty good. My first recording I got through and realized that I had the mute button pressed, so that's not helping anyone. Call me. The G-Man! Well, there's this girl... Well, there's this girl... (laughs) The mayor of Granada? The mayor of Granada? The mayor of Grenada? The king of grenades? (laughs) 